Well, as Al said, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bentley Crawford. I'm on staff here at Palm Vista. And I have the opportunity this morning to continue preaching to you in our Acts sermon series. We've been in the book of Acts for quite a while now, and we'll continue to be for a little while. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13 this morning, verses 44 to 52. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to, to get it out and open it up at this time and turn to Acts 13. I'm going to be in this passage the whole time this morning. So we're going to be looking at Acts 13, 44 to 52. This is God's precious and holy and living word. And here's what it says. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that by your Spirit you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, and hearts to know you through this passage this morning. I pray that you would make us joyful people seeing all that you've done, and I pray that you would make us joyful participants in all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you may not realize this, but it was right around a year ago today that I was standing here preaching my first sermon at Palm Vista. It's kind of crazy how time flies. And if you'll remember, in the first part of that sermon, I talked about how I'd had this unexpected yet amazing experience of delivering our second daughter, Annie, in our apartment on the bathroom floor. It was not planned but it happened. And so we were celebrating Annie's first birthday just a few days ago. And my wife and I were just reflecting on how much joy this sweet little girl has brought to us, on how gracious God has been to us to give us a daughter like her. I mean, she really has lived up to her middle name, Annie Joy, because God has brought us so much joy through our little sweetie. In fact, if you've spent much time with us over the last year, you've probably noticed that we've done this. I mean, we can't shut up talking about how much we love our little daughter, how cute we think she is, how wonderful we think she is. God has just been so gracious to us. And so if you think about it, that's exactly what all of us do 
when we're overjoyed by something, right? When something thrills us, when something excites us, we can't help but move from the joy to expressions of it, to overflows of gratitude to God, to praise of whatever it is, uh, to, to wanting to tell everyone about it. You know, we'll, we'll post it on Facebook or, or Twitter. We'll text someone about it. We'll try to talk to people about it over the next meal or break. That's what happens when something makes us happy, when we value something or see something as amazing or beautiful or when we treasure or prize or delight in something, we can't help but want to proclaim and broadcast it. We can't help but want to talk about it and tell others about it and point people to it. And I believe that this connection between our joy in something and our telling others about it, this connection between our happiness in something And our sharing of it to others holds true to an infinitely greater degree when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I believe that our passage this morning is going to demonstrate this for us. We're going to see this vital connection between God's mission in the world and our joy. And so I think what God wants to say to us through this passage, it's my main point, I'm going to put it up on the screen, is this. God's mission... And our joy go hand in hand. God's mission and our joy go hand in hand. So here's the question for us. How's your joy this morning? Did you wake up on the right side of the bed? The wrong side? What's going on in your life right now? I can just imagine that there's at least a few different ways we're feeling in a crowd this size. First, maybe you mentally assent to and agree with all that God has done and agree that you should be joyful, yet you're not. You're not happy. Maybe it's because of something in your theology that tells you that you shouldn't be happy. Or maybe it's because of things going on in your life. Difficult things. One way or the other, you may agree that you should have joy, but you don't feel joy. Well, friend, I believe that there is a message for you in this passage today. That if you are in Christ, God has done great things on your behalf. And He intends for it to give you deep, serious, lasting joy. He intends for you to feel it. And to know it. And then maybe there's others of you who are sitting here pretty happy this morning. Maybe you woke up on the right side of the bed. But maybe your joy isn't rooted in what God has done in the gospel. Maybe it's just because things are kind of going your way. And maybe it's something about your job, good news, popularity, maybe something else. Friend, God desires that your joy, your happiness would be rooted in something more firm. Something that, you, that, that can carry you into and out of the darkest times of life because they're coming. And then finally, maybe, maybe there's those of you who just don't want to be happy or feel that you can't. Maybe you're downright sorrowful. Maybe you've gotten bad news about your health, 
about your finances, maybe a loved one, health problems, maybe they've died. Times have been really tough. Well, friend, God has a joy for you that can take place right alongside the sorrow that this world brings. A joy that can make it bearable and give you hope in the midst of anything. Friends, wherever you're coming from, however you're feeling, in the midst of a fallen, deceitful, painful world, it is essential that we get this vital connection between God's mission and our joy because they go hand in hand. We need to see it. And so to help us do so, let's get into the passage. Let's get into the first point here. Point one, God's mission, seeing the big picture. So look back again with me at verses 44 to 47. It says this, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So here in this part of the passage this morning, we really get a chance to understand what God's mission in the world really is. I mean, we use this word mission a lot. What do we mean? What is God's mission in the world? What do we mean when we say mission? Well, here we have the opportunity to get a glimpse of the bigger picture. Okay, so if you'll remember from last week, let's get a little context for this passage. When Corey preached, Paul and Barnabas had traveled from the island of Cyprus up to a city called Pisidian Antioch. And upon getting there, they entered a synagogue and were asked to speak. And Paul stood and he gave this amazing sermon that Coy preached on last week. He showed how God had fulfilled his promises to Israel by bringing a Savior, by raising Jesus from the dead. And that through him, forgiveness of sins and freedom from the condemnation of the law of Moses is available to everyone who believes. And so when he ended his sermon, the people there begged that they would come back the next week and tell them more. And they followed them around during the week. They begged that they would come back the next Sabbath day. And so here we are, the next Sabbath day. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas come back and almost the whole city shows up to hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine the whole city? Now, this would have been a predominantly Gentile city. So the majority of people showing up wouldn't have been Jews, but would have been Gentiles and probably a bunch of really pagan Gentiles at that, trying to press into this Jewish synagogue to hear. So evidently the word had spread. You see, because there were some Gentiles in the synagogue the week before. They were the ones often referred to as the God-fearers, okay? Gentiles who had either converted to Judaism or at least attended the synagogue and in some measure worshipped the God of Israel instead of participating in the pagan polytheism that the rest of the city would have practiced. And so presumably, these Gentiles, these God-fearers, began to tell other people in the city. And I wonder 
If the reason why the word spread so rapidly and there was such a large turnout, apart from the Spirit of God just working, is if because on the previous Sabbath, when those God-fearing Gentiles sat in that synagogue and listened to Paul preaching the wonderful news about Jesus Christ, they heard something that piqued their interest. It seemed to sound as if this good news was for them also, and not just the Jews, as if the Jewish Messiah... And all that came with him was good news for Gentiles too. Because for the first time in a gospel speech, I think, in Acts, Paul addresses, in the the sermon I just referred to, he addresses not just the Jews, but also the ones who fear God. In both uh, verse 13, 16 earlier and in 13, 26 he does it. Here's what he said in 13, 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. Okay, so he's talking to the Jews there. And those among you who fear God, to us, has been sent this message of salvation. So I know it's difficult to imagine, but try to get your your mind around how these Gentile God-fearers must have felt when they heard that. That it wasn't just the Jewish Messiah coming to the Jewish people, but that he had come to bring forgiveness and freedom to Gentiles as well. And so the word of the Lord spreads, and a huge crowd, almost the whole city, gathers to hear the word of the Lord. However, once they show up, instead of getting to hear Paul give the gospel message, the Jews step in and seek to ruin it all. Look with me at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So, the portion of the Jews who disagreed with Paul's message, they see the crowd of Gentiles, and instead of being filled with joy and gladness at what God is doing, they were filled with jealousy. And they begin to publicly engage with Paul and contradict what he was saying. And the word behind there, the phrase reviling him, is the word blaspheme. They were blaspheming Paul And the message of Jesus that he was preaching. They responded to the word of the Lord, the work of God that was supposed to be for them with jealousy, contradiction, and reviling, blaspheming. They were so concerned either about their own standing in the community, their apparent lack of success compared to these apostles' instant success, or more probably, any suggestion that Gentiles could receive salvation on the same terms as Jews. Remember, from earlier in Acts, they considered the Gentiles to be unclean and common, needing to convert to Judaism before being able to lay any claims to the benefits of God's work through Judaism. Friends, may we not be so exclusive are so narrow that we become jealous and angry when God freely chooses to work through other people or other churches, when He chooses to work in ways that are different than what we had planned. So, the Jews publicly confront Paul and they contradict him. And here is how the apostles responded. Look at verse 46 with me. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, 
Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas speak out boldly. And here is where we get a glimpse of the big picture of God's mission in the world. So here's what they say first. Look at it. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Well, what does that mean? It was necessary that they preach the gospel to the Jews first because Jesus was and is the Jewish Messiah. He was sent, he was sent as the Savior to Israel. It was God's promises to Israel that he was fulfilling and raising Jesus. It was their good news. But instead of receiving this amazing news with joy and responding to what God had done with faith, they respond with hard hearts. Read the rest of the verse with me. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The word of salvation had come to them. The good news about Jesus had finally reached their ears and they thrust it aside. They rejected and in effect rendered judgment on themselves that they are not worthy of eternal life. Friends, may we not thrust aside the good news of Jesus Christ. May we not reject what God says in His Word. Why, you ask? Because nothing short of eternal life is at stake. Life with God forever. Or life without Him in hell. Listen, if you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, may I just ask you, please, Don't thrust aside the good news about Jesus. Don't discount it as foolish or stupid. Eternal life is at stake in how you respond to this message. Please consider it. Ask God to grant you to believe it. I pray that He would. Okay, so after pointing out the implication of the Jews' actions. Paul and Barnabas then deliver this shocking news here at the end of verse 46. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then they back it up with a quote from the Old Testament in verse 47. They say, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying... And then they quote directly from Isaiah 49.6. We're going to put it up on the screen for you, okay? Isaiah 49.6, they say, I have made you a light... For the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, this Isaiah passage is quite important to help us understand what God is up to in the world because it's applied here to the apostles and it echoes Jesus' earlier commission to them in Acts 1 8, which has been programmatic for the whole book to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And then it was also applied to Jesus himself in Luke 2.32. You remember, if you remember the story from around Christmas time where the old man Simeon comes to the temple in the spirit. He takes the baby Jesus up in his arms and he blesses God saying that he had finally been able to see God's salvation. And he says, a light for revelation 
to the Gentiles. So this passage helps us to understand what God's purpose was for Jesus and what his purpose is for all of those who preach Jesus even today. You see, in the book of Isaiah, he is in the midst of prophesying about this servant who would come, whose purpose was to bring Jacob back to him. That Israel, the nation of Israel, might be gathered back to God. His purpose was to restore Israel back to God. But then God goes even further and says this. Here's the whole verse, verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Don't you love that? It is too light a thing. Too light a thing to simply restore ethnic Israel and bring salvation to the remnant of the faithful Jews. But he says he'll make this servant a light for the nations, for all nations, for all peoples, that his salvation might reach to the end of the earth. Friend, your salvation My salvation, the very fact that we are sitting in here today is rooted in the reality expressed in this verse. Indeed, expressed all over the Old Testament. It's rooted in God's mission. This mission that didn't just all of a sudden change directions here in the first century with Paul, but had been in God's heart from the very beginning. Let me take you on a tour here. Um, we're going to look what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. It'll be on the screen. He said to, to Abraham, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the way back in Genesis. And then here in our Isaiah passage, he prophesies that his salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. You see, God chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. He chose the nation of Israel. He raised up Moses and David for the explicit purpose of bringing Jesus Christ into the world to bring salvation to all people so that he might purchase a people for his name, a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, even every time, so that the vision given all the way at the end of the Bible to John in Revelation might one day come about. We're going to put that on the screen. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, talking about Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood, here it is, you ransomed people for God, and from every tribe, and language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see, this is the big picture. God created everything. History is playing out that the way it is, all towards this great goal of God in the world, that he would have a people for himself, a people purchased by the blood of Jesus, who will after their brief time on earth, spend an eternity worshiping the God who made them and saved them. A people, get this, who will see God. A people who will dwell with God forever. Let's read Revelation 21, 1-3 on the screen here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. This is the big picture, friends. This is what God is up to in the world. This is God's mission. And the only way that people partake of this is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Paul came to tell this Gentile city. He came to tell them about Jesus and the salvation found in him. The proclamation of Jesus is at the core of God's mission. And so, as the Jews thrust aside the good news, Paul turns to the Gentiles because God commanded him to do so. Because God was bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. And so this is where the connection between God's mission and our joy, as I mentioned earlier, becomes plain. Where we see how God's mission and our joy go hand in hand. And we're going to see it immediately here in the response of the Gentiles to this news. So let's get into point two here. Point two. Our joy. The goal and fuel of God's mission. So read with me, starting at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so imagine this with me. A message too wonderful to imagine had been announced by Paul the week before. And the Gentiles, who may have previously thought that this message was reserved for Jews only... Here, not only that Paul is turning to them, but that God had commanded him to do so. Indeed, it was his plan all along. Think of the joy they must have experienced. It's like this, okay? Imagine with me for a second a young orphan boy living at an orphanage or a children's home. And from time to time, he would be visited by this really wonderful father and son. Over time, as they visited frequently, he began to really enjoy his times together with them, and he'd really look forward to whenever they would come. And so imagine on one of their visits, after throwing the football around for a little while and playing, they sit down, they're taking a break, and he's sitting next to his friend, and his friend and his dad are talking. The dad and the son are having a conversation, and they're talking about their plans for the future. Talking about playing sports, going to college, getting married. And the orphan just sits there and he looks on with longing, wishing he knew of such things and could have any kind of hope for participating in them. 
he begins to feel sad for himself and kind of just sit there quietly until their conversation is over. However, just as he begins to look down, the dad calls his name. He looks at him in the eye and says, this is for you too. We've decided, if you're willing, to adopt you. All that is ours will be yours. Think of the joy that that little boy would experience. One who once had no hope was given hope. One who once had no family was given family. One who once had no future was given a bright future. I mean, all of a sudden, the conversation that the dad was having with the son applied to him as well. Now, all the details mattered and were full of joyous potential because it was his story now as well. It was his story now as well. Friends, this is how God describes what has happened to these Gentiles and us as well in Christ. Look with me at uh, 1 Peter 2.10 on the screen here. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then again, Ephesians 2, 11 to 13, it says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What amazing news, friends. We're no longer strangers and aliens, as Paul goes on to say, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so it's fitting that the Gentiles respond the way they do to Paul's message. Look with me at verse 48 again. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, They rejoiced and they glorified the word of the Lord, which means that they honored it. They listened to it as God's word and believed it. And then look at what it says. As many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Luke makes it abundantly clear that what had happened, Luke makes it abundantly clear what had happened and who was responsible. God was the one who appointed them to eternal life. The ones that God appointed were the ones who believed. Right here is as unqualified of a statement of absolute predestination as is found anywhere in the New Testament. Here in this verse, we have the unadulterated doctrine of election. This verse is foundational to the definition that Wayne Grudem gives for election that we're going to put on the screen, and it's one that we agree with. It says this, Election is an act of God before creation in which He chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. You see, Luke is making it clear that this was God's intention 
God brought the message to them. God had saved them. It had been His plan all along. He loved them, and He wanted them as His children, and He made it happen. And let's not miss what He appointed them to. What does it say? Eternal life. In this passage right here in Acts are the only two places that eternal life is mentioned explicitly. And you know what it means? It means everlasting resurrection life. God has appointed them to know Him and live forever with Him. And it begins even in this life spiritually and will be consummated at the end physically. And so this is why I said earlier, okay, that our joy is the goal of God's mission. Because when we see all that God has done for us in the world on our behalf in Jesus, and He appoints us to eternal life, we respond with faith and joy unspeakable. I mean, how can we not? It's such good news. Right, you say, Bentley. Things are hard right now. I don't feel the joy. I'm aware. Like I said earlier, that though you may agree with me, yes, this is awesome. Wait, I don't feel it. That many of us may not feel it. There's often times where we don't. So what is it? What is it that keeps us from this joy? What is it that keeps us from this joy? Well, let's think about it. First, for some, it may simply be bad theology. I've heard more than once before a teacher or preacher make this distinction between happiness on the one hand and joy on the other. Oh, they'll say happiness is temporal and surfacy, but joy is deep and lasting. Now, I know it's no doubt well-intentioned. They're trying to warn us about merely being glib or happy for no real Godward reason. But I can just imagine how easy it might be to take this the wrong way and just be a stern old Grinch, all the while maintaining, you know, well, deep down I'm joyful. (laughs) Now, I'm not happy, but I have joy. What? Listen, if God has really done all these things then it should elicit from us happiness and joy. Not merely a mental assent to joy, but actual feelings of joy. When we see the big picture of what God has done and is doing, then it is a reason, it is the reason to be happy. Friends, you have permission to be happy about what God has done and is doing. To be happy about all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You have permission. Indeed, you have great reason each moment of the day to smile. No matter what else is going on. To smile and breathe deep and rejoice because God loves you. And you will meet Him one day soon. And then secondly, what is it that keeps us from this joy? It could very easily be that we've forgotten the good news about what God has done. As Corey was talking about last week with the flag post, we could be so familiar 
with the language of the gospel that we've forgotten its significance. I mean, we come in here every Sunday, just like Corey was talking about last week. We see the same people. We sing similar songs. We hear the similar message about Jesus. And it can become so familiar that we forget its significance. Maybe it's because we're not spending as much time reading the Bible or praying to our Heavenly Father anymore like we once did. Maybe we've stopped coming to church gatherings as much. Maybe our affections have become misplaced. Maybe we're finding more joy, as is so easy to do, in the newest whatever than in Christ. You see, if we allow our busy lives or even our laziness to keep us from these vital practices, friends, our hearts can grow cold over time and unfeeling. The truths that at one time used to animate us and excite us can no longer seem to mean as much. You see, because of the fallenness of the world we live in, the spiritual battle we face and the weakness of our own flesh, the joy that God intends for us to have, get this, is one that must be fought for. It's a joy that must be fought for. Let me read you a quote, and I'll put it on the screen, from John Piper in his book, When I Don't Desire God. He says this, Far too many Christians are passive in their fight for joy. They tell me about their condition of joylessness, and I ask about the kinds of strategies they have pursued to defeat this enemy. And they give the impression that they are a helpless victim. Joylessness is just there. What can I do? Well, God does not mean for us to be passive. He means for us to fight the fight of faith. The fight for joy and the central strategy is to preach the gospel to yourself. This is war. Satan is preaching for sure. If we remain passive, we surrender the field to him. And finally, this also holds true if we're experiencing a lack of joy for other reasons. Maybe it's because, and I'm certain this is going to be true for many of us, the shame and the guilt that we feel when we sin. Because we sin, don't we? It's not a good thing, but we do it. It's reality. Nothing can blur our spiritual vision or distract us like the shame and the guilt we face when we sin. If we don't run to God in confessing our sins and remembering His forgiveness, we will struggle mightily here. And even then, it can be hard still to shake the guilty feelings. In those moments, friends, we must do battle. Read this quote with me from Martin Luther. We must follow his example. He says this, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death in hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death in hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where He is, there I shall be also. We must do battle for our joy, friends. We have to fight to remember these things because there is a spiritual battle going on. 
And our joy is on the chopping block every day. Our desires can become so easily mixed up. We can find ourselves often not wanting to worship God. Not wanting to gather with His people. Not wanting to read the Bible. And on and on. I mean, even earlier this week, when I was sitting down to prepare this message and look at the passage initially, my heart did not desire to sit down and meditate on this passage. I wasn't happy about God. And I wanted to do anything. I wanted to do anything but sit down and read this passage and think hard about it and ask God for help. Can you relate? Friends, in those moments, we must do battle. And the battle is one of faith and joy. It's a battle to remember who God is and what He has done, and what He is doing, and to have our hearts and minds stirred so as to rekindle our joy in Him. Just to give you an example of some things that I try to do, a few of the things that I've found helpful is this. They're not prescriptive, but they've been helpful. I like to read the Bible out loud to myself. I mean, whoever coined the term quiet time has really not served us well. Because reading the Bible out loud is so helpful for me as well as just getting into a humble position and praying out loud to God. And finally, to turn some worship music on and sing to the Lord. I mean, Jesus said to go to Him in secret, not in silence. (laughs) And so in those moments, God stirs my affections, and He sharpens my focus, and He gives me joy in Him. Friends, God intends that we be a joyful people, finding our joy solely in Him. I want to read to you from Psalm 67 real quick, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. It says this, to demonstrate this fact. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the nations with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And listen, friends, when it says here, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That doesn't just refer to those people out there that we hope to reach with the gospel, that means you too. You're part of those people. God loves you. He sent His Son into the world for you. He crushed His Son on your behalf. He raised Him for you. God intends that you praise Him. He intends that you be glad and sing for joy every day. You of all people have reason to do so. You see, the goal of God's mission is our joy in Him. Our real, true, deep, fought-for joy. But it's also the fuel for our participation in God's mission, the second half of that second point. So back to the passage. The Gentiles rejoice in what God has done, and they believe in Jesus. And then look what happens. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
Well, how do you think that happened? Well, certainly Paul and Barnabas continued to teach throughout their time there, but it wasn't just them. When these Gentiles went back home, they began to talk about what they heard. They began to talk about their newfound faith in Christ. They began to talk about it in their jobs and at the marketplaces, and it spread throughout the whole region. You see, when we're joyful about something, when we're excited about it, we tell others about it. It just bubbles right out. Just like earlier what I said about Annie, we can't help but talk to people about how much we love our little girl. When we're excited about something, it just comes out of us. When we talk about participating in God's mission and sharing the gospel and doing evangelism, now let's be honest. I mean, oftentimes it can sound pretty difficult, right? Maybe even downright burdensome or scary. But you see, at the root of that problem is a joy problem. Because if we are excited and overjoyed about Jesus, then mission will just flow right out from us. When our joy in Christ is high, mission is a delight. When our joy in Christ is low, mission is a drag. You see, you can't proclaim what you don't prize. You won't declare what you don't delight in. You can't hold up what you don't hold dear. You can't exude that which you don't enjoy. You won't announce what you don't adore. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You won't tell of what you don't treasure. So if you want to be faithful in sharing the gospel and pointing people to Christ, begin with your own joy in the gospel. Now look, obviously we can't just stay there. We're going to have to step out in faith at times when we're not feeling it at points. But the connection remains. The happier we are in God, the more natural it is for us to talk about Him. John Piper says again here, I have a quote for you. Again, another quote. God is calling us, above all else, to be the kind of people whose theme and passion is the supremacy of God in all of life. No one will be able to rise to the magnificence of the missionary cause who does not feel the magnificence of Christ. There will be no big world vision without a big God. There will be no passion to draw others into our worship where there is no passion for worship. You see, friends, our joy fuels our participation in God's mission. And get this, it doesn't just fuel our participation when things are all happy-go-lucky, but it fuels it during the hardest times as well. Indeed, the Bible doesn't know anything of a joy that doesn't occur right in the midst of sorrow and difficulties. Look with me at verses 50 and 51. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. I mean, look at that. The Jews wouldn't let things go. They intentionally incite many devout devout women and leading men in the city against the apostles. They intentionally stirred up persecution against them and eventually drove them out of town. 
leading the apostles to shake off even the dust of their feet in a symbolic act of warning and disassociation with them. And then, even though persecution had been stirred up, even though their leading apostles had been driven from the district, oh, I love this line. Look with me at verse 52. And the disciples, that is those who remained, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I mean, what an amazing statement. This statement comes right in the midst of hardship and persecution, not easy and peaceful times. Friends, God intends that we be a joyous people, knowing God's salvation, hearing the word of the Lord, and being filled with the Spirit should result from us in shouts of joy each day. The Spirit desires to produce that joy in us. Joy in the goodness of God. Joy in God's salvation. Joy in God's Word. We should be a happy people. Even, even in the midst of trials, persecutions, calamities. And this applies even to us today in the difficulties we face apart from persecution. I mean, what a sad, hard, difficult world we live in. It seems that hardship, sorrow, and even death are around every corner. I don't understand how anyone can go through life on this earth without the hope of a Savior. I mean, I guess the only option for them is to not think about it too much and just walk in blissful ignorance. But we don't have to. We can face it all knowing the good, sovereign God has it all in His hands and that no matter what may come, we will be going home to Him. What hope we have, church. What joy we can have in the face of financial problems, in the face of job loss, in the face of cancer, in the face of heart attacks, in the face of car crashes, in the face of the death of our parents, or even the death of our children, and even our own impending death. We can be, as it says in 2 Corinthians 6, 8-10, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Why? Because we know the big picture. We know what God has done, is doing, and where He's taking all of us in all of history. We know that this life is only temporary. We know that death has lost its sting. Friends, our joy in God is the fuel that enables us to happily participate in God's mission while enduring the sorrows and sufferings of life. God's mission and our joy go hand in hand. Friends, the the plan of God to bring His light His salvation to the nations, to me, to you, was His plan from the beginning. 
And this is really good news for us and for anyone who would believe in Jesus. And so as we see the light of God's salvation coming into our darkness in the message of Jesus, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. We should be people full of the Holy Spirit and of joy. And as a result of seeing God's salvation light, we should turn and participate in God's mission to bring it to other people. We've seen something so amazing, so wonderful. How can we not share it with others, even to the ends of the earth? God's mission, friends, is that we, he would have a people for his own possession, a people who worship and love him, a people who are happy in him, and a people who happily participate in his mission in the midst of all that life can throw at them. God's mission and our joy go hand in hand. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes up. Oh Lord, thank you for your mission to bring your salvation to the ends of the earth. Thank you for bringing the light of the gospel to us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world to save sinners. Thank you for appointing us to eternal life. Thank you for the hope we have of being with you forever, of being your people, Lord, of seeing your face, of dwelling with you forever. Oh God, how can grief remain when our Savior reigns? How can we not be happy people all the days of our lives? Lord, would you grant us to be filled with your Spirit and to fight for our joy in you so that we may be happy in you and happily participate in your mission in the world. And Lord, to be able to say, would you grant us to be able to say along with the song that we're about to sing, that whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Lord, would you grant us to sing that in the depths of our being this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.